chapter 12. We're also going to be praying for the Kluet people group of Indonesia as we, uh, as we pray for our time in the Word this morning. This is 56,000 people, most of whom are believed to dwell right in, in that region uh, of Indonesia. They have not spread out into the world. But think about that, 56,000 people. Um, that is, that is that's, it's a large number, uh, similar somewhat to the, to the population of Salisbury, depending on how you're measuring that. That's a, that's a large group of people. And as we pray for them, uh, we want to remember and think about the fact that we're about to partake of the word and they have no translated scripture. They have no audio New Testament. The Jesus film has not been translated into their language. There is nothing for them. And so we pray that, that, that the word of God would reach them and that missionaries would go to them as well. We're going to read Romans chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 9, and then we will pray. This is what the scriptures say. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we confess that we have a need that only you can meet. As human beings, we are good at remembering information that is relevant and specific to us. We remember our phone numbers and our email addresses. We remember uh, when to pay particular bills. And we remember all kinds of things, all kinds of data. But it is hard to act on some of the commands that you give in scripture. And so some of the things that we know that are less than trivia, that are commands for how to live, these are the things that we hear and we think, yes, that is important, but they are the hardest things to act on. It's not simply a matter of remembering, but a matter of remembering in such a way that we say, this is what I must do. I am called to walk in the obedience that comes from faith. And so as we approach this topic of love this morning, I pray that we would not dismiss it as something that's easy, but instead that we would recognize it for what it is, something that is simple to understand and yet hard to live out. Father, we think of the, the Cluet people this morning, Lord, 56,000, that is a lot. And they have no word in their language, that means that they do not know of Jesus. The data shows that less than 2% of them are followers. And so, Lord, we pray that in part through our efforts and through our prayers and mostly by your power that you would send people to reach them 
and to share your love and your kindness with them, Lord, because we benefit regularly from the hearing and the reading and exposure to your word, and they have nothing. And so we pray that they would hear and turn to you and be saved. And Lord, as we meet this morning, I pray that our hearts would be transformed, that we would be humbled, that those who assemble here this morning to hear would be challenged by your word, that they would look to you for salvation and for life, and that we would seek to walk in humble obedience. Lord, we pray this, knowing that you're good and kind and that you sent Jesus for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, if you grew up in the 80s, you might remember what a magical time it was. Some of you grew up before the 80s, and you remember some other time as magical, not nearly as magical as the 1980s. Uh, some of you have grown up uh, with, with no knowledge of the 80s, and, and you have no idea how amazing it was. Um, I mean, the 80s were amazing because simple things were amazing back then, right? In the 1980s, there was a company in Australia, right? And they invented something that they called ice magic ice magic right and what this stuff was it was it was sold later on by another company in, in britain and it was called birds ice magic is no longer available under that name but it's available under other names but but they they invented this syrup right and it was available in chocolate mint chocolate uh honey <coughs> but uh strawberry the honey didn't make it over here but what what this stuff did was you could take it and you could pour it on ice cream and when you poured it on ice cream it would form a rigid shell it was like the coolest thing they called it magic shell in the 80 in the 1980s here in the United States and it was like if you had magic shell in your house that was like the coolest thing I can remember my brother and I just like pouring that on there. And, and in my, our house, ice cream and ice cream toppings were highly regulated. Yeah. They were controlled substances. <laughs> and so, you know, you would put this stuff and it would, it would slowly ripple down over your ice cream and turn into this like protective layer that you could then break. It was so satisfying. You break through it, you know, and, 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 and eat it. It was amazing. Now, you might not know this, but Magic Shell works because it has coconut oil and sunflower oil in it, which are solid at room temperature, right? And, and so um, at, at cool temperatures, it is solid, and at higher temperatures, it is a liquid, right? So you weren't supposed to put it in the freezer or the fridge because then it would be unusable. You kept it on the, the counter or in the cabinet, right? And, and that way it would not uh, become this, this hard shell until it was on ice cream. Uh, what I think happens to many Christians is as time goes on and they live the Christian life or because of the way that they've been, been raised or because of experiences that they have had, as they go through life, as they travel past the point when they have discovered Christ and they've believed in the gospel, they, they form this protective layer, right? The, the armor that is there to protect us from uh, spiritual assaults by the, by the powers of, of Satan and, and by the world at large is something that we use increasingly more and more to protect ourselves against relationships. 
Uh, we, we have had people hurt us. We have seen people come and go in our life or in our church family. We have had people who we trust deeply wound us. And so what we do is we put on more and more armor. We coat ourselves with this shell. Sometimes what we do is we begin to focus more on doctrine and ideas in the church, right, within our own Christian life. And we begin to look at the, the Bible as more of a trivia book to be sorted out, right? Deep things that we need to know. It is good to know Old Testament history. It is, it is good to spend time saying, what can prophecy teach me? And what does the Bible say about the end of all things and the coming of Christ? It's good to do those things. But if we turn away from relationships and our mission and focus on information rather than obedience, we're getting off course, right? The shell that, that we're putting on prevents us from living out our mission. And so if we focus more on doctrine and on truth than on living it out in our lives, maybe the shell is getting in the way. If we focus more on information and the proper transmission of information and the right form of information rather than our mission, which is to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them and to teach them, maybe the shell is getting in the way. If we're focused on the control of the church or the regulation of the church rather than the correct and proper spiritual growth of the church, that more and more people would be walking in obedience. Maybe the shell is getting in the way. In the middle of an extremely difficult experience with the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians, I believe it's in chapter 4, Paul says that he speaks like a man. He says that he speaks foolishly. I think I'm totally off on the scripture reference on this, by the way. I think it's much later, as in, as in uh, chapter 10. And what he's, what he's doing is he, has, he is justifying his behaviors. He is appealing to the Corinthians because they've gone astray in so many ways, and they've broken their personal relationship with him. They are, are distancing themselves from him. And at some point, he says, I have opened myself wide to you. Will you not open yourself to me? He's trying to restore the relationship, not to out-doctrine them, not to, uh, what, what he's focused on is restoring the relationship with them, that, that interpersonal care and love. And so what is he doing? He's disassembling his own personal armor, opening himself up to be hurt, opening himself so that hopefully they will let down their guard and lower their defenses and love him in return. Because when you think about the mission of the church, we have a redemptive mission, don't we? Make disciples of all nations. 
Go and make disciples. Teach them to obey. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is the redemptive mission of the church. But the church also has a relational mission. The redemptive mission of the church will not last forever. It will come to an end. But into eternity, the church will always be called, always involved in loving God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. Mission will not last forever, but relationships will. And so this ought to be a driving focus of the church to love, as Paul says, genuinely. As we get to Romans 12, Paul is saying, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, present your body as a living sacrifice. So engage the physical self in the worship of God. And don't be, don't be conformed to the thinking of the, wor of the world, but be changed and renewed in your mind and live out the will of God. Right? And so what he's saying is engage personally in this. And then he's going to begin to walk through a number of, of different ways in which we do that. And we saw that he talks about not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. I want to be careful when I reiterate this. What Paul is He's, he's not saying here, he's not saying think of yourself as if you were just a, a, you know, a bug to be crushed. He's not saying that. He's saying think of yourself with right thinking, not with pride and arrogance, but think of yourself for what you are, a child of God in his family, a part of the body. And then he talks about the importance of all the different pieces and that whoever we are, we're to live by faith and to use the gifts that God has given us. And so those are the first two challenges of, of being transformed in our thinking about ourselves. Think rightly about myself. Think rightly about myself in relation to others. And then he turns to a very general but important focus. And he begins to talk about love. This is where Paul goes first. Think rightly about yourself. Think rightly about how you relate to others. And then he says, love should be genuine. Love should be genuine. Why is genuine love important in the church? I believe it's because there is a world full of people who need love and they are not receiving it in a way that is healthy or nourishing or sustaining. Each and every person is born out of sync, broken in terms of their relationship with God, right? They're, they are born dead in sins and trespasses and God is moving in such a way that that relationship can be restored. The scripture says while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. Right? The scriptures say in Ephesians chapter 2 that though we were dead in sins and trespasses because of the great love with which God loved us he made us alive together with Christ. The scriptures also teach, and we saw this in Romans 10, that people cannot hear, they will not hear, unless someone brings this word to them. And so the mission of the church then 
is to bring the word of God's love to people who are not connected to that love. There is a world full of people who need love and they are not receiving it. And that is the mission of the church. You know, it's amazing. People say things like this all the time and I think that they're, I think that they're wrong. People say, oh, people aren't interested in the message of the church. People aren't interested in the church. They're not interested in spiritual things. They think that it's irrelevant, not true. You know why? Because every single human being craves love. They do. They do. It's just that there are dozens of substitutes out there. Cheap substitutes, inferior substitutes, imperfect substitutes, right? You know, stuff that, I mean, you know, I, I was reading a number of years ago. Uh, my mom used to give me these giant stacks of magazines. And, and this is, um, like, one of the things I used to do was, like, save advertisements and things. And I'd, like, decorate my whole room. Like, you know those clue walls that you see? Um, you know, I had stuff pinned everywhere and uh, stacks of things. But I can remember years ago, flipping through a magazine and seeing uh, an ad, I think, for real food or satisfying food, and it says, it said, there is a hunger inside of you that an entire bag of cheese curls will not fill. Right? And I have eaten an entire bag of cheese curls. And I can testify to the truth of that, that they, that you are still hungry once you eat them. And so what we find is that there are people who are out in the world who are trying this and that, and they're going here and they're going there, and they still come up short in their search for love. But it's not enough for the church to tell the world that the love of God is for them. When they bring people into the church, the church must be an environment where love is genuine. And I believe that in large part, we are presented in the United States and in this region here on the shore that the church is full of people who crave genuine love and perhaps are not feeling it or finding it. They're afraid to ask for genuine love, many times because they've got something going on in their lives or they've got something in their history or they've got something about themselves that they're struggling with and they fear that they'll be rejected or cast out by a church who will judge them when they say, I I need help. The example of the Father, the example of the Lord Jesus is to move past the sin that we see in each other's lives. The Father acts this way, Romans 5, while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He saw the sinner in need and in desperate conditions, in need of rescue, and he moved and acted in a way that established the love relationship. And as believers, yes, we ought not to lower our standards and say, it's okay, behave any way that you want. But it is much easier to speak to someone and to say, these are the things that must change. This is how you must bring your life into alignment with the Lord. If there is a deep 
trust built and care built. Isn't it much easier to hear criticism from someone that you know cares about you and you knows that and you know that they love you and will stand by you like you're close to one another and then they come and they say, "Hey, you know what? Helpful tip. Maybe stop doing this." And you're like, "Okay, cool." It's so much easier to receive that from someone who who you just think is criticizing you or coming at you. They don't care about who you are, they just want to get it off their chest, right? You've had that experience at times. And so Paul says here, let love be genuine. Don't let substitutes for love take first place in the church. Jesus is clear in his condemnation of hypocrisy in his ministry. The leading religious group of the day, those who thought they were the experts, right? They were religious, but they did not have a passion for people. They mastered information, but they didn't love. Matthew 23, what does Jesus say to the Pharisees? He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Hypocrite back in that day did not mean somebody who says one thing and does another. It meant a play actor. It meant someone who puts on a mask and goes out on a stage and plays a role, right? And that's what we, what we see here is that the Pharisees, in the way that they were reacting or acting, they were saying, we support the values of God outlined in the scriptures, but it was just a mask that was covering their, their internal heart and soul. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then here's the example that he gives You tithe, right? You give 10% of your mint and dill and cumin. I don't know what that is. My wife knows what it is. She cooks with it. She'll say, I can taste the cumin. And I'm like, I have no idea what cumin tastes like, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. But apparently this is something that people grow in their gardens and it's got leaves, right? And what he's saying here is that they go to these plants and they count the leaves and they take the 10th leaf off, right? And they tithe that, they bring it to the temple, and they say, I am a good believer. I am a good follower of God. Here is 10% of everything that I've got. But Jesus says, woe to you. You tithe, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now think about that in the context of love. To love someone and to seek justice for them is to stick up for the one in need, isn't it? To love someone when they have done wrong and they are saying, I need help and care and love to show mercy to them is to love. To remain loyal to someone when they have failed is to be faithful to them. Jesus says, woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites. You tithe off your plants, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. They were religious, but they didn't have a passion for people. And they had not built a culture where people could say, hey, you know what? I could use some help getting back in line with God. I could use some help getting back on the path and running the race again. Would you help me? No, they split people into good people and bad people. 
And they didn't feel that the ministry uh, that they were given was to bring people back into right relationship with God. Matthew 23, 25, we see people who are religious without a love for God. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate. The external was brought into line with the law of God. But he says, inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. I mean, let's be honest, right? If you had to make a compromise and say, do we always want to wash the bottom of the plate and the outside of the mug? If you had to make a choice, bottom of the plate or outside of the mug, or the inside of the mug and the top of the plate, I'm taking the inside of the mug and the top of the plate every single time, right? I mean, that's the surface that you eat off of. That's where all the germs are. That's where the rot is. And so what, what he's saying here is that they focus on the external and the perception of people who are looking at them, but God is the one who sees the inside. And that is what is important. The love that is expressed for God changes the inside, not the outside. The outside is what men see. God is the one who looks upon the heart. And so what Paul calls for here is genuine love. In my scripture here, right, in this Bible, the heading for this section, verse 9, it says, marks of a true Christian. Genuine love is the very next verse. Let love be genuine. This week I had an opportunity to talk to somebody who who offered uh, some helpful feedback and encouragement on on the message last week, this idea of thinking of yourself with with right thought. And as we were talking about the the verse in in Romans 12, um, we kind of uh, transitioned over to another thought in Philippians chapter 2, right? right thinking about yourself, right view of yourself in regard to this command in the scripture. This is what Paul says in Philippians as he's talking to them and he's saying, make my joy complete in your development and growth. He says this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't, don't act motivated, completely focused on yourself. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What Paul is expressing or saying here is that the view of the person who loves is that the people who are in my life are worthy of the affection and focus that I would put on things if I were focused on myself, right? To love is to will another person's good. To say, I'm going to do the best I possibly can for that person. I'm going to do the best I possibly can for them. Sometimes that means that there's going to be conflict because they're living in a way that's not good for them. And I need to love them and say, hey, maybe you should change this or that. 
Maybe they're in a, a place where they have a, a, a deep need that they cannot meet themselves. And I'm feeling like I'm kind of in a similar place and I gotta say, you know what, I need to, I need to suffer a little bit to help them because they really need help. Because that's what I'd want someone to do for me. I'd want someone to help me. Counting others more significant than our own interests. Look to their interests. This was the mind that Jesus had. The passage here says that though he existed in the form of God, which, by the way, anybody who wants to mess with this or question with it, you know, they may show up at your doorstep and say, Jesus wasn't God. He existed in the form of God. I think if you exist in the form of God, you are God. Right? But it says here that he took on the form of a servant. Right? You know, this is like the CEO of the company in that uh, undercover boss show, right? Putting on the janitor's uniform, right? Jesus' name tag said, CEO and commander of all things, right? One day we'll have authority over everything, but he puts on a janitor's uniform that says Joe, right? And comes down to earth. He takes on the form of a servant. Why? Because he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. To be, to be grasped, to be held tightly to. And instead, he said, you know what? I will let this go and embrace service. Embrace helping others. Why? Because his heart was not motivated by his own interests, but was motivated by what was best for others. Genuine, true love. What does Jesus say in, in the upper room to the disciples? Greater man, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so what Paul says next, I don't think he's just like spitting sentences here, okay? Like, let me give you a list of tips, right? Uh, a number of years ago, um, th there were these little books called Life's Little Instruction Booklet. You ever seen these, right? And, uh, and what the author did was uh, he was talking with one of his kids, and he shared a bit of advice, and he was like, that's pretty good. And so what he started doing is writing all of his tips and things that he would say um, uh, into, uh, into these books. And then somebody eventually discovered them, and now there's like seven volumes and like 100 different rebrands of it. You know, uh, Life's Little Instruction Book for cats, right, you know, and those kinds of things. Uh, but the initial books are really good, and there are some things in there that I really love, like no one should be shouting at one another unless the house is on fire. I like that a lot, and I think I've said that a few times. Um, it's good. What Paul says next, I think, are two major instructions regarding genuine love. He says, abhor what's evil. Hate what is evil. And hold fast to what is good. Hate the evil and hang on to the good. As believers, what we ought to say when we think about genuine love and the fact that we are called to love others and to serve others and to care for them and to help them on their journey... Help them on their, their path as they pursue Christ and as they pursue holiness. Is we ought to say, what gets in the way of that? What stops that? And then we say, this goes on the stop doing this list. The we hate this list, right? 
I think the Bible translators chose the word abhor because it, it's not hate, right? You know, and it's just maybe a little easier to tolerate. I like the word hate. Let's make a hate list. This is stuff that we hate, right? Gossip. Talking to somebody else about a problem with someone instead of talking to them. Spiritualizing certain Bible texts in such a way that we no longer have to obey them. What does the Bible say? If your brother has sinned against you, go to him. Well, you know, I decided that in this case that wasn't relevant because. Really? Come on now. How about this? Uh, this is one that my pastor said years ago. Believers, we like to say things like, you know what? I love that person in Christ, but I don't really like them. Really? Why does that sound spiritual to us? But people say this. They convince themselves of things that, that somehow weaken their commitment to the truth. Because what Paul says is, let love be genuine. And we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that everyone that is in the body is significant and important. And that we ought to think of ourselves rightly and with sober judgment. And so there are times, like let's put on the hate list, stubborn refusal to repent when we know we're wrong. Have you ever been completely and totally and utterly wrong about something and you knew it and yet for the sake of your own dignity and the preservation of your place, you were like, I will persist in not admitting I am wrong for the next 45 minutes during this argument. And then I will never, ever, ever address it again or say, I was wrong when that happened. We're going to put that on the hate list, right? Stuff to get rid of. Things to own and to say, yeah, that's my problem. And then we ought to hang on to what's good. You know what's good? Repentance. Saying, you know what? I think I'm, I think I'm in the wrong right now. I've had opportunities to do this before where I've been on the phone maybe and I'm starting to talk about something I shouldn't and, and, or in a way I shouldn't and saying, you know what, I don't think I should be talking about this. I'm really sorry. Repent right then. Like, why save repentance for 30 minutes from now? Right? When we know it's wrong. Repentance is good. You know what else is good? Going to somebody and, and saying, hey, you know what? This is something that I did or said that, that maybe caused a division between us. Am I, am I wrong about that? Can we, can we fix that? You know what else is good? Saying, you know what? I see good qualities in you. And I want to learn to live that way too. Could you talk to me about that and help me? You know what else is good? When someone comes and says, hey, could you help me? Not saying, you haven't gotten there yet. Like, What's wrong with you? That's Christianity 101. How dare you? Like, get yourself in Sunday school, you know? Like, let's get you in front of the church and confess your, your sins and your errors and, your, and all the things that you've done wrong. What's good is to say, yeah, I'll help you. I'll help you. When Paul speaks to Timothy and, and he's giving advice to this young man that he's mentoring to be a pastor in the church, he doesn't say, be perfect. He says, apply yourselves to the things that you've been taught so that your progress will be evident to all. Your progress. 
as a, as a church, we ought to be focused on watching people grow in faith and saying, hey, look, there's been, there's been change and development and growth, not they have upheld this perfect standard, right? Don't we admit when we talk about the gospel, don't we, when we talk about the good news that Jesus has come to save, don't we always say he lived a perfect life for us because we couldn't do it ourselves? And yet, what people feel many times is that they need to get in the church and be quiet and live this perfect life, kind of get rid of all the, the things that are out of joint, and then they, they conceal what's going on inside of them, and they're like, sooner or later, someone's going to come along and help me, teach me how to live. And then they, they, they see these struggles and problems, and they think, I can't talk about this. Like, I need to smile and shake hands on Sunday morning and be in fellowship. And I can't say I am struggling deeply and I need help because that would be bad. That approach and attitude ought to go on the hate list. We don't like that. That's not good. It's not healthy. What we ought to put, it, uh, what we ought to put on the good list is accepting when people say, hey, I'm struggling and saying, good for you. Let's get you some help. Let's help you develop and grow, which interestingly is what Paul says next. Love one another with brotherly affection. Now hopefully, you've grown past the point where brotherly affection is, these are people that I live with who punch me, right? Because that's the way my relationship with my brother was growing up. But now, you know, at this stage of life, looking at him and his marriage and his kids and my marriage and my kids, we view each other as running the same race, basically the same age, basically the same stage. What do you do about this? How have you handled that? Can you give me some advice about this? And there's no judgment there. We're in this together because we're in the same family. There's a loyalty there. And that loyalty ought to be in the church. In Hebrews chapter 12, this is what the writer says. He says, strive for peace with everyone. Peace is, is something that we accomplish because we love to be at peace, right? Because we want to be in a relationship where our, our communication and our relations are not blocked by the, the difficult or bad or, 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 or you know, selfish things that we've done. We want to clear all that stuff out of the way so we can be at peace with one another. So strive for peace with everyone and also strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so we're running this race together and we're talking to each other and we're saying, you know what? You need to change this or change that. Get rid of this. Add this discipline. Focus on this area because we are called to grow and to be holy. Verse 15, again, we see brotherly affection and loyalty. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What does that look like? It involves some digging and some pruning. What, what, what the writer says next is see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. You, you, you've seen this, right? You've seen the roots active in life, right? On your front lawn, those dandelions or those weird things that, that get 
spat around by the, the lawnmower, you know, like if you're not careful, if you don't, if you don't maintain, if you don't focus, like all of a sudden, like where did that tree come from growing up there? You know, it's just like, why is there a tree in the middle of the grass? Well, the seed is there, the root is there, and that thing, it is not going to quit. It is like, I will survive. And that's the way that our souls work many times. Something happens and our expectations aren't met. Possibly because we've not communicated them well to someone, not said, hey, this is what I expect here, this is what I'm after, this, this didn't happen and now I'm upset with you. And we allow those unmet expectations to become a source of trouble. We can become bitter because we have been offended. Someone did something that embarrassed us or did something that we think is unacceptable. And rather than going to them and saying, hey, you know, focus on or help me understand this, we say, you know what, I'm just going to sit back in judgment and judge you. That's a root of trouble. Sometimes someone has hurt us done something that has wounded us deeply or affected us or changed our life or changed our perspective on who they are. And we need to learn to forgive and to say, you know what? Maybe I'm not going to forget that this happened. I'm going I'm to demonstrate wisdom in interacting with this person. I'm not going to put them in a position where they can hurt me in the same way. But I am going to forget it and not constantly bring it up in our relationship. We're going to seek to overcome it and build a stronger friendship or relationship. We're to see to it as a church that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Why? Notice what it says at the end of verse 15 in Hebrews 12. By it many become defiled. When the church isn't careful about maintaining the lawn, right? Pulling up the, the seeds of bitterness. And that means that, that sometimes with people that we really love or in a Bible study or in a group setting, when, when somebody gives evidence that there's some bitterness there or that there's a root of relational trouble, you know, sometimes we've got to say, hey, I've got to follow up on that. I gotta have a conversation. I gotta say, what's going on there? Let's talk a little bit more about that. When we don't do that, many become defiled. There are people who come into the church looking for love and care and answers, and you know what they find? A dysfunctional church where love isn't genuine. Sometimes they say there's no truth there. Sometimes they say, you know what, I'm going to stay here because this is what my life looked like before and this feels comfortable and so this must be what worshiping God looks like. And so they perpetuate that sickness through further generations of the church. But where love is genuine, people learn to share their burdens. They learn to expose what's going on inside and to say, I need help. They learn to say, I love you despite the hurt that has come between us and they repair relationships. And listen, that is the good news. Notice the connection here of gospel-driven love. First, let me say this. Why, why do relationships fail? Why do they fall apart? Why do churches split? Why do people leave churches 
when they are hurt, it's because of hard-heartedness. It's either that or laziness, a failure to follow through and to do the things that are necessary. There are other reasons to leave a church. I'm not saying that everyone who's ever left a church is bad. But many times when relationships go sour, we just kind of let them get worse and worse and worse. And then they feel unrecoverable. Many times that's just because we're not willing to own our part of it and say, help me. In Matthew chapter 24, as he's describing the end of all things, Jesus says this, and the love of many will grow cold. You know what happens if you put magic shell in the fridge or the freezer? The sunflower oil and the coconut oil becomes solid and then it doesn't work anymore. Right? You, you hold that jar over your ice cream, you, you hold that bottle and you're squeezing that thing, you know, you want the, the shell to come out of the nozzle, but it is clogged and cannot, it won't function. The instructions actually say if you put it in the fridge, you can microwave it without the lid, or you can place it in hot water for a short amount of time to restore it to its normal function. When the love of, of people grows cold, when the love of the church grows cold, when, when the love of groups within the church grows cold, here is the instructions, here are the instructions, sorry, that's proper grammar, that are put, printed on the back of the bottle. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, right? Okay, get rid of all the junk, right? Put that stuff on the hate list and, 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 and get rid of it. But then here's the positive prescription in verse 32 of Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. And then you want to hear the gospel connection? This is where all the power and strength of the verse is. Has God in Christ forgave you? Has God in Christ forgave you? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Warm up cold affection so that love can be genuine. There is one person in the universe who could have said, you know what, I'm done. I am offended and hurt, and I have never done anything wrong. And the example that he shows to us, the example that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit show, is that instead of being harsh, instead of being hard-hearted, instead of embracing unforgiveness, instead they are kind and tender-hearted, and they forgive. And so we ought to as well. That's what the transformed mind and life looks like genuine love living in the church. Let's pray as we close. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word and to be challenged by it. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you that this is a church where we don't need to fake it in the pulpit and say a bunch of ridiculous stuff so that you know people will just keep on coming out. We don't need to entertain by compromising. Instead, we can just say, this is what the text says. And so I thank you for a church that embraces your word. 
Father, I pray that it would go beyond just an embracing of your word as truth when it's proclaimed, but instead that we would say, this is the way that I need to live in the most difficult moments when we are being confronted, when our honor is at stake, when we feel like, like we are being challenged for not being one who lives with truth. Instead, Father, may we receive the truth as it comes from brothers and sisters in Christ. And may we live in a way that demonstrates genuine love. Father, help us to warm up and to show genuine care and affection for one another. Help us to lower the walls and to let go of the hurts that we are hanging on to, the ways that others have hurt us, that we might live and love in a way that is genuine. Father, help us as a church to lovingly and carefully uproot bad behaviors and embrace good behaviors. That those who come here to find the truth and that those that we reach out to with the truth would say, that is what life ought to look like in terms of other relationships. And so we pray that we would be winsome and humble and caring and that we would share with others the thing that they want most. The love of a family and the love of a God who cares deeply. We pray this, Lord.